Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Palm Sunday. I'm just going to fix this real quick because I'll be a distraction to all of you, mainly to me. This is like 500 pounds. All right. Anyways, if this is your first time at Renew, <laughs> welcome. And if it's not, well, you're used to me. So God bless you all. Well, welcome to Palm Sunday. I'm excited for this, the beginning of Passion Week, of Holy Week. And uh, we're going to uh, do a message. I'm going to do a message on Palm Sunday. Then, of course, as Lauren said, we have Good Friday and Easter. So uh, ideally, this is all going to connect together. So I just um, invite you just to prepare your hearts um, as we receive uh, God's Word. So if you are able to stand up for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Mark 10 and at verse 46. And then we're going to jump over to Mark 11, just a page over. And at least it is in my Bible. Mark 10, verse 46, and I'm actually going to read the NIV this morning, and then um, uh, the NLT Bibles are underneath you, but they read the same thing. Mark 10, verse 46, and it reads, Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man Barmaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Mark 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought their colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of them, of those who followed, shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this time that we can be together and gather in your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scripture to us, Lord. And thank you for what you've done just over 2,000 years ago, Lord. And as we take a moment this, this morning and then this week and going into Easter, your Resurrection Sunday, let us not skip ahead to just your resurrection, but start out as you are riding down into Jerusalem. And then the cost of our sin that puts you on the cross, Lord. So Lord, 
not just today, but this week as we reflect on that who you are and not just what you do, but the way that you love us. You just remind us of that. So Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word and whatever you want me to say, I say whatever you don't, I don't. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You may have a seat. So as I mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, it's the week leading up to Easter, and today begins the start of Passion Week or Holy Week. Um, There's various names. You may or may not have grown up knowing that, or you may have read this together, but regardless, this is where if you're reading the Gospels, the Gospel slows down, and in great detail, all four record what Christ does, uh, his week leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And this week out of all other weeks is where we really take a look at the past and what he has done, uh, the present, where we are at in Christ, and in the future, and how it all comes together in the hopeful anticipation and expectation of Christ's return. And this is where we reflect on what Christ has done and is doing and will do, and this is a remembrance of Christ as he was here on earth. And how through the Holy Spirit, now he is currently working. And then again, like I said, his return. So one of the portions of the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry that is often overlooked is the story of Barimaeus. At least it is, it was for me. Um, If we were working through Mark or or Matthew or Luke, we would have, have touched on it. But usually on a Palm Sunday, we go right to Jesus enter. We talk about the donkey. We we may modernize it, saying, "Imagine if Christ told you to go steal that Mercedes," or actually, I guess that Pinto. That's a car. Okay, so. That's usually the focus, but the focus here this morning, is there's a couple of things I do want to touch on, primarily on Barmaeus and, and um, what he did and, and um, the response that we should have like his. And, and as I was preparing for this message last week and then now in this week, uh, actually this past Thursday, I gave a mini version of this sermon to the good people at H Street Ministries, and that's where Pat and Marty Cross uh, serve and volunteer, and one of their um, um, Jesus encounters, they shared about that ministry. But I, but about every six or eight weeks or so, now I volunteer just to give a little message, and what I tend to do is give them the message and then work it out for you. So you're welcome. Um, <clears throat> actually, no, it's just a small, small portion of, of um, this message. And, and again, this is where Pat and Marty and other volunteers, they, they care and feed the homeless or people who are near homeless. And, and, and I was beginning out the same way that I'm beginning here. I was, had the same thought in mind that Jesus knowing what was going to take place and yet he came. And, and I really stole that from Marcus a couple of weeks ago when he gave that communion meditation about facing something that he knew that was coming not that it was a surprise, but yet he still did it. And at least this past Thursday, my illustration, as I said, imagine you're hammering a few nails and you know that the next swing you're going to catch your thumb. Would you rather know it was coming or not know it was coming? And then, of course, everyone said not know. And then I said, if I'm honest, I would rather not hit my finger at all. 
But after the service, after the meal and everything, I was leaving and someone stopped me outside. I didn't tell you this, Marty, but as I left, someone came up to me and thanked me for the message. And then he left me with this, you should probably leave hammers alone. <laughs> leave it to the big boys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. He's not wrong. All right. But this whole thought of this eager anticipation of knowing that it's coming and again, like I said, that Marcus Benedict led us uh, in that communion. Christ was fully aware of what was going to take place, the pain, the heartache, the betrayal, knowing in advance what he was going to face just really reveals how much he loves us and that he was willing. So this morning, I would like us to have this thought in the back of our mind the entire time and really, honestly, this whole week until Easter and including Easter, this thought that Christ knew what he was going to face, the worst week of his life. And he had all of eternity immediately in his future. He, he knew what he was going to face. He was about to face this great celebration and in total abandonment. And yet in the midst of all of that, he made time for the one blind man who called out to him. I don't know about you, but if I'm getting ready to do anything, and, it doesn't, and I'm not facing death, any kind of hardship, any hard work, if I get interrupted, I can be a little snappy. What do you want? Sundays can, as I mentioned before, be a little bit challenging. And if, if one of my daughters, who's the youngest, who's named Nora, oh, well, I just spoiled it. She says, Daddy, can you help me put on my shirt? And her arms are all stuck above her head. What? Ask your mom. And oh, hold on. Okay, I'll help you. But just that, just, just that, or you know, you're getting ready for the work week and you're getting everything lined out and you're planning it all out and someone interrupts you. But yet what Christ does is he's going to face death for all of humanity and yet he takes time for the blind man who calls out to him. So I hope we can all see that Christ cares for the one among all of us. So if you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I know God sent his son to die for the sins of the world, but does that mean me? Yes. It means you. And this is what that week is all about. And somehow how God loves all of us at the same time and individually at the same time is mind-blowing. And this, again, is what this week is about. So before we actually jump in and talk about Barmatus, I do want to jump forward just to Mark 11. We read that halfway through. And I just want to get a snapshot of the place that he came from, where he was going, just to kind of help set us up for what's taking place. So if you're following along, if you go to Mark 11, uh, verse 1 there, and this is the classic triumphal entry or... or Palm Sunday message, and it says, as they approached, the, the disciples, they approached Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of his disciples. So just real quick, it's real easy to skip over names of cities or names of people, to be honest with you. Uh, if there's a hard name in the Bible, you kind of, you know, you just kind of, you do it. Don't pretend. Unless you're preparing to say the name, then you press play a whole bunch of times on your Bible until you get it down and you write it phonetically. But it, I don't want to skip Bethpage and Bethany because it's right si outside of the Mount of Olives. It's about two miles outside of the Mount of Olives. 
east of Jerusalem. And these two towns are lesser known towns. And this is actually where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Um, This is actually, for all intents and purposes, the first time Jesus is out in public after Lazarus has raised from the dead. And I know we went over that, I don't know how long ago, a few months ago when we were in our other series. But these two neighboring cities are poor series. Bethpage, the, the name means place or house of figs. And whenever we do go to Jerusalem there next year, we will drive by it and you'll see all these figs. And uh, here's a little, little lesson here in, in the Greek-Hebrew translation. Um, Beth just means a house. So anytime you see Beth, there's nine of them in the, in the Bible. It just means house of. And it's dedicated to what that means and what is to be expected. So, for instance, Beth Page is a place of young figs. And what do you see there? Figs. It's not that difficult. right? But Bethany, that's another one. Beth, that means house of. And Ani means house of the poor. And uh, again, anytime you see this Beth, but Bethany is a tricky one because actually there's several translations for that, that the dictionary says. It also means the house of sweetness, the house of sorrow, the house of singing, and the house of the poor. Now, you may be asking yourself, why and how could it mean all four of those and just one name? And the reason why is it is the house of the poor until Christ comes. It is the house of sorrow before Laz- while Lazarus is dead. It is the house of sweetness because they're the only house that welcomed Christ when he's here on earth. And the house of singing because we sing praise to Christ. So it's interesting and maybe not surprising that Jesus takes this route from the east going over the Mount of Olives and essentially coming here, the only place that he has mostly somewhat been welcomed. At least he had a house to sleep in with Lazarus, with Mary and Martha at their house. It's also where Christ will return from the east, from the Mount of Olives. It's interesting. When you read the Bible and you slow down and you pay attention to it, you will see that usually it's like a threefold storytelling. What has happened, what is happening, and what is to come. You see that? So what had happened is this is where Jesus healed Lazarus. In the present, this is the way that he rode into this triumphal entry. And finally, when he returns. And I only say that, you may not care, but I find it interesting that, that um, these names carry so much weight. It's, it's almost as if you could just consider real quick, when you took time to name your children, those of you who had children, I don't think you threw a dart at the board. Maybe you did. Maybe you flipped a coin. I don't know. Maybe you fought over it. But the names carry so much weight. And even, even up until just the last couple, 200 years before, we were, we were called by name, son of, and then the name. And it's the same, same thought process of these place. So Christ is now going to the house of the poor. One other note. This is where if you were homeless, you could go and stay for free. You would have to work with the figs, and you could even do it today. I was looking that up just a couple of days ago to look, and you could still stay there. It's, it's more of a hostel now, but you could still stay there. So essentially, just consider this. Christ is coming from the city that is considered the house of the weeping, the house of the poor. But really, this is the gospel in a nutshell. We are saved through weakness, never strength. This is 
why he enters from the east and will return. And one theologian wrote, sin is a servant that puts themselves in place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of a servant. And this is exactly what Christ is doing. And then as he enters, then this, the, the whole story about getting a donkey. And uh, Jesus says, hey, go get a donkey. And uh, they're saying, okay, what do we say? When they notice we're stealing Jesus, he says, oh, it's okay. Tell them the Lord needs it or Christ needs it. And the reason why is all these people knew him. They already knew Christ. So we're stealing this donkey, this, this, this new cult of a donkey, and we're going to take it. And when they come out and challenge us, we say, oh, it's okay. Jesus needs it. And it's interesting because the donkey was not tamed. And also no one at this time, no king horse or donkey or anything that he rode in, no one was allowed to ride in it. So it had to be a donkey that was never ridden. And of course, God could have supernaturally provided a donkey. He could have called a donkey from a distance. He had in the past used a donkey to talk. But what this really shows is that Christ likes to include his people in his work. And for some, he asked them to go and get a donkey, and for some, he asked them to give up a donkey. You notice that? Christ could have said, supernaturally called a donkey, say, hey, look, God the Father conveniently got us a donkey, but what he does, what God always does, what Christ always does, what the Holy Spirit always does, is he invites his people to join him in his work. Now, it's probably not exciting if you were asked to go get a donkey. It's probably not exciting if you're asked to mop the floor in the bathroom. It's probably not exciting, fill in the blank. But yet, even in the small things, Christ is inviting us in. And then again, for some of us, he's asking us to give up that donkey. So not only did Christ come for all, but he came for one. And he came for one, not just to say, this is what I'm going to do, but I want you to join me in this. So they get this donkey and everything is going well as as sponsored and then here comes the good part if you join in verse 50 it says throwing his cloak aside or excuse me in verse uh, 3 of 11 if anyone asks why are you doing this the lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied it at the doorway as they untied it. Some people standing there, what are you doing and tying the colt? They answered, Jesus had told them what he had told them to do, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Hey, just, just if you're following along in your Bible, you may want to underline that, because we're going to talk about the cloaks quite a bit. So they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks. There you go. You can underline that again on the road. Different translation says their apparel or their garments. Same thing. It's their outer cloak. While others spread branches they had cut on the fields, those who went ahead and they all f- followed shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're crying out. Exactly as Zechariah had prophesied just about 500 years before. The Lord would come riding. But then yet, in less than a week, the crowds will go from crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us, to crucify 
crucify. And there's some debate whether or not it's the same people. I think it's the same people, or at least I think the people who were yelling out, at the very least, Hosanna, Hosanna, has now retreated and hid. But they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. So, what is this all about? And why is Christ riding in? And who is this Barmaeus? So let's go back to Mark 10 and let's spend some time considering him. Let's go back to Mark 10, verse 46. So they're coming from Jericho, which is further east, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Barmaeus, was sitting by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, and called him. So they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak, oh, there's another cloak. He jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Which is a, seems like a silly question. Jesus asked the blind man, what do you want? But he said, Rabbi, I want to see he said, go. Said so Jesus, your faith has healed you immediately. He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Uh, this Barmaeus is considered Jesus' last disciple while he was here on earth. The very last one. A blind man on the side of the road. And it's interesting what he says to Jesus as he's on the side of the road. He yells out, he yells out in great anguish. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, before someone would say this title, in other words, Jehovah, here's the exact translation, really is what he's saying. Jehovah, my salvation, the Messiahship, the son of David, savior of the world, king of king, Lord of lords. This is what the blind man is saying, all in a nutshell. And this is the very first time in public that Christ does not correct someone calling him Messiah. This is the very first time. If you go back and you look at throughout the Gospels all the times that they say, who are you or what should I do? Christ always says, go and don't tell anyone or go and tell a small group of people. You remember his very first miracle, turning water into wine. When his mom says, Jesus, do something. He's like, my time has not come, woman, you know. That sounded way harder than I meant it to come out of my mouth. I'm sorry. You get the point. No, mommy, it's not my time, right? He's always saying, it's not yet. It's not my time. Because the moment that he acknowledges in public he is a Messiah is the moment he will die. So for the very first time in public, a blind man cries out and essentially says, my Savior, have mercy on me. And he doesn't correct him. So as soon as Jesus acknowledges him and essentially says, the blind man, picture this, the blind man, which is interesting, a blind man knows who Jesus is, cries out and says, Messiah. The disciples, the other disciples are standing around there are probably thinking he's going to correct them. He always corrects them. It's not his time. And then when Jesus says yes, they're like, oh, it's go time. Like he's king, king now. Let's get our swords. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's blow some people out of the water. Let's get them. Let's, let's knock down. Let's start this. So they're excited. 
that he, he finally acknowledges. Because you remember that the disciples, when are you going to do it? Even his brothers back in John, Jesus' half-brothers are saying, well, you're the Lord, why don't you do some stuff? He goes, it's not my time. But now a blind man says, Messiah. And he says, yes. So now everyone's like, oh, it's getting real. It's really going to happen. He's going to blow all these people up. We're going to have our kingdom finally. But again, notice that it is a blind man who cannot see who knows who's Christ. I always wondered and think, how do blind people in the story know that it's Christ? But then if you connect it to spiritually, how do we know who Christ is? It's the Holy Spirit, his spirit. He is calling us. He gives us information. He's, he's, he's pleading for us. That's why in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who lets me in, he's crying out. So we know. And again, and later in Romans, we have no excuse because all, all of humanity and all of nature reveals his glory. But it's this blind Barmaeus that cries out. So even before Barmaeus had a personal contact with Jesus, he believed him to be Messiah, the son of David, Again, which is the term that Matthew uses for his actual title. And this is the same messianic promise in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Uh, This is all of the eager anticipation all through the Old Testament. When all of the prophets pointed one day there will be a Messiah, finally Jesus says, it's me. But then look what happens. He's crying out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what happens? Many people rebuked him and told him to be quiet. You see this over and over again. Shh, be quiet. Shh, stop. But it doesn't, he doesn't stop there. Son of David, have mercy on me. One commentary, commentator wrote, it would be interesting to consider this yelling of, of crying out to David and being told to be quiet. The moment that he cries out again is the moment that he knows that he will not accept alms or money from the crowd anymore. Essentially, if you were a beggar at this time, you essentially almost always had to do whatever was commanded of you or you knew you would never expect to have it again. So now we're starting to see the heart of Barmaeus. He's saying, he's crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me, which we all need to cry out to. And then whenever he's told to be quiet from the crowd, he is essentially saying, I don't need what you have to offer anymore. And he cries out to Jesus again. It's beautiful. So what does Barmaeus do? He cries out to mercy. He cries out for mercy again. And then with boldness, when Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He is bold enough to know that he is in the presence of his Savior, that he can boldly ask, I want to see. And, and, and there's mixed emotions whenever you boldly come into the throne. Some, sometimes you can think, well, I deserve because I am saved by God. And then for some of us, we think, I don't want to ask anything because I am not worthy. And yet, with that mindset, both of those can be false in the sense that you think you have to perform in such a way in order to hear, for God to hear you. In reality, you must start off by saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, I'm just going to guess, but I'm assuming if Jesus says, not yet, but follow me, I believe Barmaeus would have followed him. 
And now to the cloaks. Let's consider this, this cloaks that I kept hinting at a little bit. If you go back to Mark 10, verse 50, throwing his cloak, Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside. He jumps to his feet and comes to Jesus. He throws away his cloak. You know, whenever you're in a small group or a life group, at least we do this in our life group, we always have some ridiculous icebreaker question. You have to say your name and then you have to say the answer. One of the icebreaker questions is if your house was on fire and all the people, because there always has to be qualifications when you do this, and all the people are safe, all the animals, whatever way you're trying to get extra stuff out of your house, if all the important things are safe, what is the one thing you would grab on your way out? My answer is always my goalie bag. Shocker. <laughs> Natalie's pictures and wedding license, you know, good stuff. Hockey bag, right? It's cheap. It's a big one, so I bring it out. But if you were to ask this icebreaker question to people at Bible Times, if not number one in the top two would have been their cloak. My cloak. To people, the cloak was their most valuable thing that they had. Even if they were rich, they would have had a more expensive cloak. Do you remember what Joseph received? A fancy cloak that got him in trouble. But let, let's just take a moment just to consider a cloak throughout uh, the Bible. In Exodus 22, verse 26 and 27, it'll be on the screen. And this is, this is some of the rules that God is establishing through Moses. And he says this, If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan... You must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out for me and help, then I will hear for I am merciful. So if you make a loan and they put up their cloak as collateral, they give you this cloak and, and whatever it is that you are borrowing from them, you have to give it back to them at night. Now you are probably thinking, well, I don't want their cloak as collateral. I want something I don't have to give back, right? At least, I mean, I'm greedy. That's what I thought. But you have to return it. And then in the morning when they're done, they're supposed to return the cloak back to you until they pay off whatever debt. All right, Deuteronomy, the same thing. Deuteronomy is just basically the cliff notes of Exodus, but I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, 12 and 13, it says, if your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as security for a loan, do not keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you and the Lord your God will count you as righteous. Oh, now you're righteous if you give them back their cloak. Let's do a couple more because I like this. First Kings 19, 19. This is when Elijah is calling Elisha to ministry. We'll have time to break this all down, but let's just read verse 19, 1 Kings 19, 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then they walked away. Elisha goes on to do twice as many miracles as Elijah does. But in order to be called, he puts his cloak around him. One more. Whenever a king came into power, anytime a king in Israel or Judea, whenever they became into power, cloaks were also involved. Second Kings 9.13. This is when Jehu becomes king. Uh, he is the son of Jehoshaphat, but 
Whenever we get to Kings, we'll talk about that more. Then they quickly, they being the other generals, because Jehu really didn't want to be king. Uh, Elijah says, Elisha, excuse me, says, hey, you're going to be king. He's like, oh, sweet. I don't want to, but okay. So then he goes, and then the other guy said, well, what did he say? Oh, nothing, no big deal. No, tell us. He goes, oh, I got to be king. And this is the response. Then they quickly spread out their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the ram's horn, shouting, Jehu is king. From these two passages, or these few passages that we have, we see over and over again that the cloaks is a security blanket. It is a security for a loan. It is also uh, giving over of your authority. It's also saying you are king. It is recognition. For blind Barimaeus in our, in our story, Barimaeus in our story, that was probably what he laid on his lap to collect all of the money that was given in alms to him. So as soon as he cries out to Jesus the second time for mercy, he throws off his cloak, jumps to his feet, and we have no record of him going back to get his security. One more, I, I lied. Remember, we won't look at it on, on, in the scripture, but remember when Paul is in jail and he, in 2 Timothy, he writes and says, bring me some paper, parchment, and my supplies, and my cloak. Like, it's, it's everything to him. You notice if we go back to Mark 11, they, once they untie the colt, they throw their cloak on top of it. So not only is it everything to them, when you give over or lay down or surrender is really the accurate term of a cloak, you are saying, my identity is no longer in my possession. You are my king and my identity is in your king. And what you'll see over and over again throughout the Old Testament, especially after the judges and then when, we go, when they go through all the kings, what you'll see is each time there's some kind of pledge of allegiance to the king, including cloak, saying, you're the king. And I surrender my identity to you. So the fact that it could be used, the, this cloak, as a security means, look, Christ, everything that I, I know to be important to me, to give me value, to collect value, I left it on the road. And he, done it, he has done it twice now. He called out to Christ for mercy twice, and now he gives over that last remaining thing. So what is it about surrendering what is important to you at the foot of Jesus? The first thing is being willing to do it. We know we should, we know we want to, and then we do it. And then many times we kind of sometimes hold on to it just for safe keeping. It's a whole classic. Whenever you pray for something and, and the analogy goes, you give it over to Christ in the morning, don't go back and take it and try to carry it for the day. It's the same thought process as this blind Barmaeus is, don't throw your cloak down and forget about it. Don't be like all the people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving the palm branches, throwing their cloaks onto the floor. And then after he passes, grab it and take it. See, we see this contrast here of what Barmaeus does. A few chapters before this, when, when Jesus, is, Jesus essentially tells his disciples for the third time now, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Just so you know. 
And then what is the first thing that, that uh, John and James do? They say, can we ask you for something? And will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus says, sure. And before you read it, you think they're going to say, can we be there for you? Can we help you out? No, they say, hey, can you make us like super important? Like, thanks for dying for our sins, but really, um, we want to be right next to you. We want the big seats. We want to be at your right hand. Remember the so-called men of thunder? But, but Maramaeus is sick, and he's sitting on the side of the road, and when he comes to Christ in his boldness, he doesn't say, can I sit at your right hand? Can I ride on your donkey with you? Can I... He says, can you help me see? Can you, can you help me see? I, I do wonder what our requests are to Christ when no one is looking. And I'm not suggesting that we can't pray big, bold prayers. I think we should, but I think that we should come at it from a place of humility and first recognize who Christ is, the son of David, our Messiah, and then cry out, have mercy on me. So as we consider this, I just, just a couple of questions that I, I wrote down for myself. The first thing was, when was the last time that I cried out to Jesus for mercy? So when was the last time you cried out for mercy from God? If you're a follower of Christ and if you accept him as Lord and Savior, you, you still are allowed and should cry out for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Help me be more like you. Help me see the things that you see. Help me be gracious and merciful. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm a sinner and I haven't got it right. Have mercy on me. The next question I wrote is, do I allow anybody to silence my voice? or dampen my enthusiasm for chasing after Christ. You notice Barmatus, nothing would stop him from calling out again. So do I let anything silence my voice or dampening my enthusiasm to chase after Christ? Does a criticism or someone as harsh or someone who doesn't believe or someone, my neighbor or whoever it is, Am I more cautious than I should be around them? Do I allow them to silence my voice? Do I let them dampen my enthusiasm? At least the word picture that I have in my mind, you know, whenever you were a kid and you were real excited to tell your mom, dad, grandpa something, you're jumping up down and you want to tell them, 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 pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt, and they say, wait. And you're like, no, pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt, pull on a shirt. And then you notice that, even if they tell you to five minutes, they really mean get away, kid. But you don't care. You don't care. Like that enthusiasm. I got to grapple. I got to tell you something. You grab their face. Look at me. You know, you're just so excited. But when they say, get out of here, kid, do you, do you get out of there? Do you? You have that childlike faith. Nothing's going to stop you from running to your dad. Then the next question I wrote down is my relationship my relationship with Christ is personal, but do I ever make it private? My relationship with Christ is personal, but do I ever make it private? Am I ashamed of the gospel? And then finally, what is your cloak? 
What, what thing or obstacle do you have in your hands that you need to cast aside? What thing do you rely on that you shouldn't? And they could be good things. I know I've talked about several different things before. I, I don't think I have to do it again in great detail. But is there something that you hold on to that you were willing to throw down to chase after Christ, but then you run back to go pick up? And just in closing, if you consider, can you imagine if Mark 10 actually and said, verse 2, go, said, Jesus, your faith has healed you immediately. He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And then there was a verse 53 that said, but later that night, in his vision, in his safety, in his mercy, he snuck and grabbed his cloak. It would break our hearts, right? So... When was the last time you cried out in mercy? Do you let anyone dampen your enthusiasm? You have a personal relationship with Christ, but it should never be private. And what is it that you're holding on to? What is your cloak? What are the things that you rely on that is not of God? So this week, as it's Holy Week, as we eagerly anticipate celebrating his death, that should break our heart, his burial, which should dampen the mood, break our hearts even further, and then the celebration of his resurrection. I think it would be good just for us this week just to reflect and have that question in mind, have I cried out to mercy? And for all of us at some point, remember that, yes, Christ died for all of our sins, but he died for your sin too. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for... um, what your word represents. It's not just a story, a, a good bedtime story, Lord. It, it is an account of what you did that we've read this morning. Thank you for the faithfulness of Barmaeus, your, your last disciple while you were here on earth, Lord. And as we reflect that um, we want to continue to be people who cry out to you in mercy and cry out Hosanna for you to save us, and Lord, forgive us when we cry out in our sin, crucify. So Lord, will you help us have boldness to come to you, but yet rooted in humility, Lord, to be reminded that it is our sin that made us think that we're king, and it is your grace that you are king, that you became sin who knew no sin. You became the servant of all, Lord. So, Lord, I pray for anyone in here that it's been a while that they've cried out to mercy or perhaps they had not cried out in mercy at all, that today is the day. I pray for all of us that whatever the cloaks that we hold on to, that we, are, that we find great value in, may it be what we do or how we do it or how much we have or who we know or whatever it is, Lord, that, that um, when we throw it to the side of the road, we don't sneak back at night and try to take it. Lord, we know that's an ongoing journey. Lord, but as we see with Barmaeus that uh, we need to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. So Lord, as we sing a couple more songs to you, we just know that you are worthy than more than anything that we could ever give you, but yet you take our praise and worship and you use them for your glory, Lord. So we thank you. And again, remind us this week to acknowledge who you are and what you're doing and help us walk in step with you. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.